Blog Talk Radio. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. It is a wide-ranging show. We are going to be all over the place. I don't know why I'm singing. Ritz crackers. Delicious. Mm. Finally, I've sold out to Big Ritz Cracker as well. On top of Big Seltzer. Lovely. Mmm. All right, so a lot of stuff to get into. Um, Fox News has more than lost their minds. They are now arguing on air to bomb Cuba, potentially militarily invading Cuba and bombing Cuba is now being seriously floated. On air, Fox. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, so I got a bunch of stuff on Cuba, including that Fox News clip, which I'm going to lead with. Then I have a great clip from my co-host from Crystal Kyle and Friends, Crystal Ball. She absolutely shreds Cuba regime change leaders, uh, cheerleaders, I should say. And um, as we move along today, I got Joe Rogan torching the Olympics. That clip is something else. Joe Biden apparently is planning on spying on text messages for vaccine misinformation. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the other end of the spectrum where uh, Newsmax host says the vaccines are against nature. We're going to talk about Cornell West and how Harvard betrayed him. We'll talk about uh, finally some pushback on Biden's unconstitutional strikes on Syria. I got Rave Dubin in the show, Joe Manchin, um, Nina Turner again. So, 
should be a very um, exciting show with many things to get into. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, we will do that with Cuba. So as everybody knows, there are protests going on in Cuba. What corporate media is not telling you is that there are also counter-protests going on in Cuba, and they're also pretty large. So I'm not going to get into um, too much on that front here, because that's not the purpose of this segment. But what I want to show you is the dominant narrative in the West and the dominant narrative on right-wing TV. So on Fox News, they're hyping up just the protests, not the counter-protests, but the protests. And um, they're pretending like the U.S. embargo of Cuba has nothing to do with why people are in the streets. Now, we know that's absurd because people are demanding more food and more medical supplies. That would absolutely be improved if the United States lifted our criminal embargo of Cuba. But they're pretending like that's not even a factor at all. And everybody who's out there in the streets wants to overthrow the government in Cuba and implement some sort of U.S.-style system. And, of course, they use the buzzwords freedom and democracy, as if, you know, anytime we go toppling governments, that's really what we're concerned about. And as all you guys know, that's definitely not what we're concerned about. We don't have some sort of benevolent, altruistic, principled crusade going on because we just want people to have more freedom and democracy. If that was the case, Saudi Arabia wouldn't be our top ally, Israel wouldn't be our top ally, and we'd have a better track record. And instead of what we do have, which is propping up of dictators, we'd have thriving democracies. Anyway, I digress. Here's the mayor of Miami on Fox News casually floating potential airstrikes of Cuba. Oppressive government and a cruel U.S. embargo. They deserve policies that empower them and help them improve their lives. Do you think that President Biden, looking at this situation, will lift that embargo? And do you think that's what he should do? No, I don't think the embargo is, is cruel at all. And I think that the Cuban people are asking for a lifting of the embargo. They're going out on the streets every single day talking about the failure of the communist regime to provide for its people. And I don't understand why that's so difficult for people to understand. It has failed for six decades. And what should be being contemplated right now is a coalition of potential military action in Cuba, similar to what has happened in both administrations, in both Republican and Democrat administrations. In Republican with Bush in Panama, they deposed Noriega, and that country had peaceful democracy for decades. And you had interventions by, by Democratic presidents, uh, you know, taking out Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. It's a, a, a sovereign country where they took out a, a, a terrorist that probably saved thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives, and President Clinton in Kosovo are intervening in a humanitarian issue uh, with airstrikes. So there have been many, many opportunities uh, in the are, history of... Are you of, suggesting of airstrikes in Cuba? What I'm suggesting is that that option is one that has to be explored and cannot be uh, just simply discarded as, as an option that is not on the table. Um, and, and there's a variety of ways the military can do it, but that's, uh, that's something that needs to be discussed and needs to be looked at as a potential option in addition to a variety of other options uh, that can be discussed. Absolutely mental. Absolutely mental. Under what authority would we be able to airstrike Cuba? I mean, the idea is, in order for us to, to strike Without congressional approval, you would need a, a direct, imminent threat of violence, an attack 
against the U.S. homeland. That is obviously not happening. Nobody's even pretending that's happening because that would be the most absurd thing anybody said in human history. So if there's not a direct threat of violence against the United States of America, and there's not, under what authority are you going to have Biden and the executive branch and the government or our intelligence agencies just, hey, we're just going to go bomb Cuba? What? What? I mean, are they actually going to make the argument that it's a part of the war on terror or something? Did I miss something? Is Al-Qaeda running the Cuban government? I must have missed that. Is it jihadists over there? Is it the people who attacked us on 9-11? Was it radical Cuban terrorism? What are you talking about? And if you want it to go through the House and the Senate, I got news for you. As insane and corrupt as the House and the Senate are, that shit is not getting through the House or the Senate. Are you out of your mind? But he's just casually floating it. He doesn't talk about under what authority we would do it. Uh, And he also doesn't mention, there's this underlying assumption here, like, well, obviously we need to be the savior. We need to be the world police. We're so benevolent and altruistic, and all we care about is freedom and democracy, and that's why we need to go do it. We need to go help these people and liberate these people. What about liberating the people of Saudi Arabia? They're one of our top allies, and they behead people in the street for drug smuggling and apostasy. Are you kidding me? Women have no rights, and you want us to be concerned about what's going on in Cuba as opposed to an area where we actually might be able to have some influence, like with Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm not saying you bomb Saudi Arabia. That's insane. But what I am saying is internal talk, some sort of pressure, some sort of, you know, economic nudging in the right direction. No. No. But when it comes to Cuba, he's like, I don't understand. Bomb it. What's the problem? This needs to be in the conversation. This needs to be on the table. How psychotic do you have to be to believe that? And then he, he thinks he's bringing up all these instances of, like, U.S. successes in, in regime change or interventions. And, number one, he's wrong in that he thinks all the things he cited are, you know, evidence in his favor. It's not. But, number two, he didn't mention Libya, failed state with slave markets, objectively worse off now than it was before we bombed. He didn't mention Syria, which is a colossal mess. The U.S. is occupying a third of the country, waging a dirty war, stealing the oil. Jihadist elements control other aspects of the country. And then you have smaller portion of the country, which is effectively the Syrian government and Assad. Uh, he doesn't mention Iraq 2.0 with, okay, we got rid of Saddam Hussein, and then it was a colossal mess and hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians died. And we sparked, we reignited uh, a civil war and sectarian and ethnic flames of conflict. Um, He doesn't mention our history in Latin America. Like, what are you talking? You think our interventions in Latin America during the Cold War were positive? We obliterated many of these countries. We propped up dictators, and there were, like, death squads, and there was torture. On what planet do you think that this is a good thing? But he casually brings it up as if it's a positive. He he compares bombing the Cuban government as if it's like bombing bin Laden. I mean, that was one of the most ridiculous Fox clips I've ever seen. And obviously that says a lot because Fox is wall-to-wall insanity. But he even has the nerve to say at the beginning, uh, no, I don't think the embargo is cruel, and I don't think this has anything to do with the embargo. The original reports, the, the protests are about, hey, man, we need more food and we need more medical supplies. We're kind of light on that, and we can't take it anymore. That is directly linked to the embargo. It's 
obviously linked to the embargo. Who are you kidding? But he acts like, no, they, don't, they actually like the embargo. They just want to overthrow the government. Are you kidding? If you overthrow the government and, and you still have the embargo in place, they'd be in a similar position. They'd be in a very similar position. Now, I'm not defending every action of the Cuban government. Of course not. I mean, we can have a conversation and go point for point and policy for policy as to what they're doing wrong domestically. More than willing to have that conversation. But to pretend like the embargo has nothing to do with it is the most dishonest thing I've ever heard in my life. Of course it has something to do with it. It absolutely has something to do with it, if not most of it. But this is what we wanted. We wanted to basically starve the Cuban people and then hope that that makes them pissed enough to not understand we're at least in part responsible, and so they try to overthrow their own government. That's what we wanted. I mean, this is a classic U.S. action. And uh, it's just, it's so disingenuous to pretend, as virtually all elected officials in the U.S. are, except a handful, that like, no, I mean, we're in, we care so deeply about the Cubans, but we're in no position to do anything about this, except maybe bomb or invade. Shinsaki said, an invasion of Cuba is not off the table. An invasion of Cuba? So we're talking maybe airstrikes or boots on the ground. Has everybody lost their mind? This is lunacy. If you actually cared about helping the Cuban people, all you have to do is lift the sanctions. That's it. There's over 200 sanctions that Trump put on. To Obama's credit, one of the best things he did was normalize relations with Cuba and lift the embargo. I gave him credit for that at the time. I'm giving him credit for it now, and I'll continue to give him credit for it. In the same way, I'll give him credit for the Iran deal. These are some of the best things he did. Biden gets in there, and he keeps the Trump uh, sanctions in place, keeps the embargo there. Why would you do that? Obama was right. Trump is wrong. I thought you were going to bring us back to the Obama years. Why would you do that? I guess on this issue, he happens to agree more with Trump than he does with Obama. But he's wrong. But he's wrong. The fact of the matter is, read the, guys, don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. You go read the history of it. Look at the history of Cuba. Look at what happened before you had Castro in the revolution. The idea that, like, this right-wing puppet dictator to U.S. interests, Batista, the idea that he was, like, a lovely person and Cuba was living, you know, free, that's preposterous. Of course that's not the case. You know, there was a revolution because he was a right-wing dictator who was incredibly exploitative, and he allowed the U.S. to exploit Cuba. Basically, Cuba was like a peasant state to the U.S. U.S. interests ran it. So what happened is there was a revolution, and um, you had the oil industry in 1960 was nationalized by the Cubans. And so before it was, you know, U.S. corporations were benefiting from Cuban oil, and then the Cuban people took it over and nationalized it. So that's the thing that the U.S. viewed as unforgivable. Not too dissimilar, remember this, uh, in the 1950s, um, in Iran, they elected uh, a left-wing leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, democratically elected leader. He wanted to nationalize the oil, and it was the U.S. and the U.K. that basically were exploiting and stealing the oil. And they said, not going to let that happen. And so the CIA overthrew Mohammad Mossadegh, and we put the Shah into power to be a dictator in Iran. And... Then eventually, in the 1970s, late 1970s, we had the Islamic Revolution, and they overthrew the Shah. So, I mean, the history of this stuff is, is crystal clear. Like, you can go read it. Don't take my word for it. And you'll see exactly what was going on here. You'll see what our, our real concerns are. 
Our concerns are U.S. corporate interests. Our concerns are stealing natural resources. Our concerns are trying to gain a subservient puppet state. That's our concern. Our concern is the oil. That's our concern. This idea that we care about freedom or democracy or we've got to liberate the people. If you believe that, you're nine years old. And clearly on right-wing TV and politicians of both parties are nine years old because they can't see through this and they're making a lot of these dumb arguments. It really drives me crazy. I mean, we need to have a media that's honest about this stuff, and they're not. And the fact that I'm a loudmouth YouTuber like myself is one of the rare, few places where you can go where we even talk about the fucking embargo, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling, but that's where we are. All right, next. Sticking with the same issue. Sticking with the same issue. Here we go. So the big issue right now is obviously Cuba. Uh, U.S. media is harping away on the fact that there are protests um, against the government. Protests are calling for more food and more medical supplies. Perfectly reasonable demands. Um, now, the part that's dishonest is that very few people in the West are talking about, whether it's the media or the politicians, are talking about the U.S. embargo. But the U.S. embargo is directly leading to these shortages. So if we really cared about the people of Cuba, we would lift the embargo. But instead what we're doing is we're pretending like the embargo is irrelevant and we're blaming the Cuban government alone. And so what we want is for the Cuban government to get overthrown and for you know, us to get back involved and have another puppet state and have a U.S. dictator in there to you know, serve our interests. So the discussion in the media has been insane. Uh, most of the comments from politicians have been insane. Hardly anybody's talking about the embargo. Um, and it's just, it's dishonest and it's disingenuous. And the fact that people are getting such a skewed picture of what's going on is infuriating. Well, thankfully, you have new and independent media stepping up to fill the gap here. Now, admittedly, listen, I'm biased. Crystal Ball is obviously my co-host for Crystal Kyle and Friends. And so, you know, uh, I tend to like her work all the time, but this one was particularly great in my opinion. So she did uh, a segment on her show Breaking Points with Sagar where she absolutely obliterated the neocon Cuba regime change cheerleaders. Well, as protests broke out across Cuba, of course, American politicians and American media were quick to jump into the fray, walking right up to that endorsing regime change line and sometimes jumping right on in. It's now almost 10 p.m. Eastern time. It's now been over, over 12 hours since over 32 cities in Cuba. Brave people have taken to the streets to protest against a communist Marxist evil tyranny. And so far, not a word. Not a word. Not a statement from Joe Biden, from the vice president, from the White House. Not a word. What is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Why are they so uncomfortable coming forward and just condemning this evil socialist Marxist regime? Well, first of all, I think Americans understand that this impacts America. Uh, you know, the Cuban dictatorship is, uh, you know, a drug trafficking dictatorship. They sponsor uh, terrorism. 
and they may have also exported communism throughout the hemisphere and throughout the world. So it affects uh, U.S. interests, and that's something that I think sometimes uh, is not uh, emphasized enough of how this affects U.S. national security policy. And I think the U.S. has to understand that these kinds of regimes that are enslaving not just Cubans, but Nicaraguans and Venezuelans and are involved in, in a variety of different places throughout the world impact our sovereignty and our security. And so I think the U.S. has a vested interest and a right uh, to intervene on behalf of the Cuban people, but also on behalf of the United States. If we could find a way to add some freedom and democracy in Cuba and overthrow the last remnants of communism and the Castros, this would have a ripple, a ripple positive effect uh, for the region. So in addition, Senator Menendez, the powerful chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, tells us for decades Cuba's dictatorship has used violence and repression to silence its people rather than permit the free exercise of democracy and their basic social rights. This must end going on to promise to use the force of his office to make sure the U.S. stands in solidarity with the people of Cuba. Florida Congresswoman and Senate hopeful Val Demings wrote in a rather unsettling tweet that America stands for freedom. We must stand with the peaceful demonstrators in Cuba. The White House must move swiftly. Uh, move swiftly to do what exactly? Now, if you come out and say what that something we must do immediately is, but history provides a whole lot of bad examples of ways that the U.S. helps to topple regimes and usher in quote-unquote democracy. And last but not least, the guy running the Army and the CIA, that'd be Joe Biden, had this to say, we stand with the Cuban people and their clarion call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic and from the decades of repression and economic suffering to which they have been subjected by Cuba's authoritarian regime. All right, a few things to say to all of this. First of all, for all of those loudly screaming that we must do something to support the Cuban people, I completely agree. We should do the something that is directly in our power and purview, which is to immediately remove the brutal sanctions that have fueled shortages and are especially murderous during a pandemic. We could also do something by lifting vaccine patent protections and helping supply vaccines to Cuba and everywhere else in the world, by the way. After all, it sure does take a lot of nerve for these people to pretend to rend their garments in agony over the plight of the Cuban people when they're all directly complicit in the suffering of that nation. And oh, by the way, it is true, as some have pointed out, that the Cuban government uses the American sanctions to distract from any of their own domestic failings and repressive actions. So don't give them the excuse. Colombians have been protesting the neoliberal policies of their right-wing government for months. We're met with government-sponsored violence, but I didn't hear too much about that from our newfound freedom fighters. Ethiopia is in the middle of a whole-ass civil war with their repressive government attempting to exterminate an entire ethnic group. No one said a whole lot about that. The Haitian people, nearly as geographically close to U.S. as Cuba and impoverished by hundreds of years of exploitation and U.S.-backed regime change there, they've been protesting against their now-assassinated U.S.-backed authoritarian president for months, and none of y'all said a thing. And frankly, it makes me sick to see the selective weaponization of this humanitarian impulse, to turn it off and on like a spigot in order to justify and serve as cover for actions that, if we're being honest, are really about enriching elites, protecting corporate profits, and fighting for the right to exploit the resources and humanity of every single country on the planet. That's a point you will never hear on mainstream media and made by, honestly, any U.S. politician. I don't think any U.S. politician will go that far. The idea that this is really about exploitation, corporate profits, resources, and sprinkle in a little bit of geopolitics because, obviously, 
anything we could do to blunt the rise of China and the influence of Russia, we do. Because we quite literally, seemingly, have never left the Cold War, even though we should have. But nobody's going to say that. And that's the part that's obvious to anybody who follows this stuff seriously and honestly. It's about exploitation, corporate profits, and resources. And if you don't believe that, she made the case perfectly there. There's been protests going on in Colombia now for months. And U.S. media and U.S. politicians didn't talk about that. Why? Because they're our right-wing government ally. So the protests there don't count. But protests in Cuba, which might nominally just be about, hey, we want more food and we want more medical supplies, that counts as direct calling to overthrow the Cuban government because the Cuban government is our official state enemy. You see how the game is rigged? You see how, like she said, they turn the spigot on for their outrage. Hey, if it's our ally, shut up, nothing to see here. If it's our enemy, oh my God, freedom and democracy, that's what we care so deeply about. Our top ally is Saudi Arabia. You're going to tell me we care about freedom and democracy when Saudi Arabia is on speed dial? Again, these are the people, women have no rights. They behead people in the public square for drug smuggling and apostasy and a variety of things that shouldn't even be crimes, adultery. Don't tell me. And again, I mean, you could also make the point on Afghanistan here, too, that, oh, my God, we're so concerned when the Taliban takes over. You have religious theocratic law in Saudi Arabia and a lot of our allied countries, and we don't care about it. We don't talk against it. But when it comes to, oh, it's an official enemy, somewhere where we want to occupy, somewhere where we want to exploit, well, then we highlight it because we're just so deeply concerned from a humanitarian perspective. We care about civil liberties and civil rights and things of, the, of that nature, which is why we, the U.S. government routinely takes away people's civil liberties, like how the NSA spies on everybody and we did torture as a matter of routine. I mean, do you see how ridiculous this is at this point? I, the point that didn't occur to me, which he's so correct about, is really the Columbia point. She's like, there's been protests in Colombia. None of you guys said anything about it. There's been, uh, you know, she talked about what's happening in Ethiopia. Honestly, I'm ashamed to admit, I didn't even know what was happening in Ethiopia, but there was a, an attempted ethnic cleansing going on there. Um, one that she didn't bring up, which I remember, is the Congo. The Congo's an absolute mess right now. Yemen, not only is Yemen a mess, we're actively helping the wrong side of that. We're on Saudi Arabia's side as they carry out a genocide in Yemen. It's just, it's incredible how we pretend to be these moral, altruistic, benevolent leaders on the one hand. And on the other hand, we're actively on the wrong side of like a genocide. It just, even, so there are worse humanitarian crises going on. Take Myanmar, or Myanmar, however, however you say it, with the Rohingya Muslim population. I mean, What's going on there might also be a ethnic cleansing, and we got nothing to say about it. Nothing to say about it. So there is no standard here. There are no principles. There is no genuine concern for human rights. And I'm just amazed at how many people follow them right down the path as if they are concerned about those things. You know, and you know, Greenwald's been making this point the past few days. He's like, well, hold on now. All the people who said they were about America first are now are like 
we should probably intervene and bomb Cuba or invade Cuba and fix Havana. Didn't you guys, I thought you guys said you were America first. We, we still don't have clean water in Flint, Michigan. Our infrastructure still gets a grade of D plus or C minus. And you want to do another invasion and another war? Maybe you're not really America first and you're just a partisan hack. And everybody involved in this is a partisan hack. And that is the reality of it. Uh, it's, it's infuriating. I'm going to ask this again. Under what authority would we even attack Cuba? Are we going to pretend like it's part of the war on terror? And by the way, that might be what the Miami mayor wants, because he says, oh, Cuba's doing terrorism and drug trafficking and uh, slavery. He's just pulling stuff out of his ass at this point. Does the Cuban government have internal domestic problems? Of course they do. Are they authoritarian in some respects? Absolutely. We are only responsible for what we do, and we are actively hurting the Cuban people with the embargo. So if you actually wanted to help the Cuban people, lift the embargo, and that's it. We're done. We helped them. Terrorism. They're doing radical Cuban terrorism as targeted Cleveland yet again. What the, what the hell are you talking about? So under what authority? They're not a director at the United States. They're not going to attack anybody here or any Americans. Are you just going to add that on to the war on terror stuff? Are you going to pretend like al-Qaeda is running Cuba? Maybe that is what he wants to do. And has the Middle East taught us nothing? You didn't learn enough from our failure in Iraq and our failure in Libya and our failure in Syria and our failure all throughout Latin America during the Cold War where we were propped up puppet dictators. And by the way, I don't even like talking about these things in the context of like successes and failures because my issue with it is in the premise. I disagree with the premise, the premise that we are the world's police and we should be viewed as the world's police and we have the right to go around and do all these things. If we're the world's police, we're like Alonzo in training day. We're oftentimes, we're the baddies because we do the torture and we do the illegal wars and we kill innocent civilians and we don't hold ourselves to the same standards. You look at what we're doing in Iran. We're sanctioning medicine from getting into the country, and people are dying as a result of it. The International Criminal Court said, you're not allowed to do that. We responded by pulling out of the International Criminal Court and berating it. And we're in any position to pretend like we're a moral arbiter? I mean, look at some of the stuff. Uh, Brian Kilmeade talked about, we need to bring them freedom and democracy. Imagine being that dumb. You have to be nine years old to think that we're really fighting for freedom and democracy. Uh, a Demo- I think it was a Democratic representative who said, the White House must move swiftly. As Crystal said, swiftly to what? You want to do a ground invasion? What are you talking about? What do you want to do? This is insanity. Remove the sanctions. That's, that's the only thing we can do to help them. And actually, Crystal makes another good point. List the vaccine patent protections. That's the other thing we could definitely do to help them. I mean, if the U.S. wanted to be serious about we care about the world, we want to be the world police, we want to help everybody, we want to be humanitarian, the first thing you would do is lift the vaccine patent protections because not doing that is effectively genocide. We have the ability to vaccinate most of the world or the entire world in due time, but we're not allowing that because we care more about the profits of Pfizer, and that's not acceptable. Now, Biden said, oh, I'm in favor of lifting the patent protections, but then what happened? Uh, Angela Merkel and others were like, we're against it. Now, if Biden cared, he would go out and talk to her privately, and then if she still says no, go after her publicly and try to force all these world leaders, get them on the, right, on the same page so that we can honestly save hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. Millions. But they're not doing that. So spare me this routine of like, you know, we care so deeply. That's why. That's why we say these things and do these things. Our record is so clear. It is clear, but not in the way that they think it is.
Okay. Next. Next, next, next. All right. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan was asked about um, Shikari Richardson and how she was basically left out of the Olympics simply because she smoked weed. He, uh, his comments here are really interesting, not just about Shikari Richardson, but also about the Olympics in general. So I want to show you some of this, and then we'll respond. How do you feel about, um, about the Olympics banning uh, Shikari Richardson for 100% horseshit? First of all, I think the Olympics are disgusting, because that lady should be getting paid millions of dollars. All of them should be getting paid millions of dollars. All the winners of the gold medals, all those, all those people that are generating insane amounts of wealth for the Olympics, they should get a giant piece of that. They're responsible for the reason why people are watching the Olympics. Right. No one's watching the Olympics because it's the Olympics. They're watching the Olympics because you see the best athletes on the world, right? Yeah. You see the best athletes who have gone through all these competitions and reached this insane pinnacle of their skill development, right? And they're getting nothing. They're getting zero. And the whole world's watching and they're selling crazy advertisement, and that money's being generated, and the networks are making it, and the IOC is making it, and all these other people are making it, and the athletes, the whole reason people are tuning in, they get nothing. It's insane. It's a disgusting, corrupt system. Gross. And then a lot of gross cities that they move into, like once they're gone, they fall the fuck apart. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of times, you know, these countries, they build up this whole thing for the Olympics, and they're incentivized, and there's a lot of money that flows into the city. And then once they pull out of that, I mean, the people that live in that country are like, hey, well, why didn't you spend that shit on infrastructure? Why didn't you spend that shit to fix the bridges and the streets and to, you know, to, to, to fucking fix these communities? But there's no money in that. They don't give a fuck about dirty, these dirty fucks. But I, I think it's infuriating that this lady, who is uh, apparently, like, she's a shoe-in for the gold medal in the 100 meters. She's supposed to be spectacular. And they're not going to let her run that. But they're going to let her run the relay. Like, fuck you. Oh, they're going to let her run? Yeah, they're going to let her run. Yeah, because if she doesn't run the relay, America probably doesn't win. I mean, I don't know. I don't know Jack Shea about track and field. I think she's kept off. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you mean? Exclusion from the relay team. Yeah, I saw that last night. Oh, this is new? Mm -hmm. She's not on the team. But for weed, for weed, it's so dumb. It's so dumb. For weed. It's so dumb. Look, if they caught her doing steroids or EPO, okay. I get it. Okay. But, man, there was a lot of people accusing her of steroids. There was, like, a lot of people accusing her of a conspiracy. So the reason why uh, she smoked weed was so that she could get caught for weed and not get caught for steroids. Like, I was reading this. I'm like, you f People can't just look at things for what they are. Everyone has to, like, look at things, like, with this conspiracy theory lens. Yeah. I mean, so that's just, that's just idiots. Yeah, I mean, to that last point, absolutely. As Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes there is no reading between the lines. It's just all out there at face value. But anyway, so, I mean, he nailed it. And it's actually really rare that people talk about the true nature of the Olympics. And, I mean, it really is wildly exploitative, shockingly so. I mean, they don't pay these athletes, and, but they generate so much money. It's a really, really strange thing. In fact, in many ways, it's a lot like 
NCAA sports. I mean, I think now, if I'm not mistaken, there was a court case somewhere in the country, maybe California, where some of the rules are just beginning to change about the NCAA, but I'm sure we still have a long way to go. Um, it generates so much money, and the people who are actually doing the work and doing the stuff have dick to show for it. They don't get anything for it. And so, I mean, I think Joe is right. Pay the Olympic athletes is one thing that absolutely should be done. That shouldn't even be controversial. Don't give me this bullshit about tradition. Yeah, I'm doing it for your country. Yeah, okay, do it for your country and pay them, dick. No matter what they pay them, it's still probably going to be under the market value of what they'd be owed. Give them something, right? But beyond that, Joe's point about, like, this is a waste of money anyway. Spend it on infrastructure, son. That's right. So get this. The cost of, of doing the Olympics, it would, it's anywhere from $5 billion to $50 billion, depending on, you know, the place and the time. Um, for just a little more than that. So for $60 billion, you could have free college for everybody in America. You could implement a free college program. But instead, you know, we, I think we have the Olympics coming here to L.A. relatively soon. That money's going to go towards something that will end up being dilapidated and abandoned. And if you don't believe me, that's what's happened virtually every time. So I remember being obsessed with this a few years back when I learned what was going on. But, yeah, there's the before and after pictures like, hey, this is what the Olympic Village and this place used to look like, and now here's what it looks like now. I mean, it all gets totally abandoned. It's all a ghost town. So basically, all these countries throughout the world took anywhere from $5 billion to $50 billion and just lit it on fire, flushed it down the toilet. You get like, you know, a little bit of time to play sports and have it on TV. And then like after that, everything goes to shit. Just a total waste of $5 billion to $50 billion. So to Joe's point, if we have these resources and nobody talks about, how are you going to pay for it in the case of the Olympics? Why wouldn't we just, you know, do the free college program or, or update the infrastructure or put this money towards better use? Uh, it's, it blows my mind. It blows my mind. And I'm happy that he said this. Um, and then to his point about Shikari Richardson, yeah, I mean, it's obvious. Weed is not even a performance-enhancing drug. So that rule shouldn't be a rule. Like, the whole idea of rules is like, let's craft a system that makes it a fair race. And so the rules should reflect that. But this is an instance of the rules not reflecting that at all. If anything, she might be disadvantaging herself by smoking weed. So should everybody else be <laughs> suspended as a result of that? Hey, she unfairly reduced her ability. So, you know, you guys got to reduce your ability or you're suspended. That would make no sense, right? I mean, this is, I'm sorry, but we got to get to the point where we catch up to reason and where we are now historically. So many states in the U.S. have legalized recreational marijuana. The federal government needs to catch on and legalize it at the federal level or at the very least decriminalize it. And, you know, the rules for sports should catch up as well. By the way, for a lot of different sports, I don't know what it's like for, for sprinting and track and field and stuff, but for a lot of sports, it's so tough on the body, whether it's football or, um, you know, basketball or what have you, hockey, these, these guys perform all the time, and their schedules are so packed. And a lot of times you get hurt, and you have, you know, physical pains that are recurring. You might drain you mentally. These substances actually might. I guess this is slightly contradicting my point from earlier about how it's not performance enhancing. 
but it helps you like rejuvenate yourself, refresh yourself, hit reset. You know, it's like if you're hurting and you take Tylenol, I guess that's technically a performance enhancing drug too, if it helps you, right? So weed does that both physically, but also maybe mentally it might help you. So it makes no sense that like we have all these contradictions too in the rules. You're allowed to take caffeine, but you're not allowed to take, you know, I don't know, some pre-workout supplement that you might be able to get at vitamin shop. Maybe you are allowed to take that, but then you're not allowed to take Adderall or something else. I mean, either we should go full puritanical and ban like all substances, no matter how minor the impact is, or you go in the other direction and just sort of do a free-for-all. Or I guess you could split the difference and do a middle ground and say only the most egregious substances uh, are banned. But even under that system, she should still be in for weed. So, and by the way, uh, if you actually read the articles on this, apparently Shakara Richardson's mom recently died. And so when she smoked weed, she was just like, I just want to get this off my mind. I mean, talk about, now I feel really bad. Now it's like, and by the way, even if that wasn't the case, still sort of fuck them for having this rule and then banning her as a result of it. Like, you don't even need to have the, the horror story and the sob story of, like, my mom died and I want to get my mind off it. But, yeah, sprinkling that on top is like, oh, my God. And this is what you're going to do? I wonder how long she's been training for the Olympics for. I wonder how long she's been doing it. And, you know, now she's going to have nothing to show for it, all because of a stupid rule that should have been changed. So he's right on the Shikari thing. Uh, he's definitely right on the Olympics thing. And very few people even know about the facts of the Olympics, that it costs so much money, and then the places get abandoned. All that money could go to something else. They don't even pay the athletes. It's such a scam, and it's such exploitation. And I guess now people are starting to have these conversations, but for a long time they didn't, and that was a shame. All right, next. There's a story that came out a couple nights ago that sort of slipped under everybody's radar. It was just a side point in a bigger article. Now, the article was about, hey, we're dealing with an issue here. The issue is vaccine misinformation. And so now we've sort of plateaued in terms of how many people are going to get their vaccine. Um, And we're trying to find a way to break through and have more people get the vaccine because we want to hit herd immunity and we want people to be protected. So the article, you know, the sentiment of the article is actually something I agree with. I wish there were ways, and we can come up with creative ways to, you know, get more people vaccinated, but do it in in an honest and straightforward way. Here's the part in Politico that people couldn't believe, including myself, by the way. Beyond Fauci, Press Secretary Jen Psaki has pushed back on Georgia Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a lawmaker, uh, a lawmaker she once said she'd not mentioned from the podium, who compared the administration's vaccine campaign to Nazis. What? Jeff Zients, the White House's COVID response director, rebuked Republican Missouri Governor Mike Parson, who contended falsely in a tweet that the government agents were going door to door to compel vaccination. Also untrue and wildly misleading. Here we go. Biden allied groups, including the Democratic National Committee, are also planning to engage fact-checkers more aggressively and work with the SMS carriers to dispel misinformation about vaccines that is sent over social media and text messages. 
The goal is to ensure the people who may have difficulty getting a vaccination because of issues like transportation see those barriers lessened or removed entirely. Okay, did you catch that? Biden and the DNC are engaging with fact checkers, SMS carriers, which is just phone companies, to dispel misinformation about vaccines sent over social media and text messages. Okay, what that is saying is, Biden and the DNC want to fact check your text messages and your social media posts and censor or pull down any kind of vaccine misinformation. I don't know why this isn't the biggest story in the country right now. Are you, I mean, Cuba is actually a little bigger, but this is gigantic. You're telling me that they want to read our texts or use some sort of algorithm to go through our texts and anytime somebody says something about vaccines that's untrue, don't allow it to be sent? And the closest thing I can remember to this is when, remember when they banned the sharing of that Hunter Biden article during the election? Remember that? And if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong on this, I don't know if this is a rumor or not because I didn't try to DM it to anybody, but apparently you weren't even able to send it through DMs. So this is a similar thing. So if anybody is skeptical of vaccines or arguing against them, then they want to ban the social media posts or censor them, maybe pull down the posts. And they want to make sure even in your text messages, the government wants to get involved and say, you're not allowed to say that. This is crazy. That's insane. I mean, listen, the groundwork was already laid, starting with George W. Bush and every subsequent administration, that the NSA has the ability to monitor everybody's stuff. Now, they're not monitoring every single thing you do, but, I mean, can they set up some sort of a system, an automatic system, an algorithm that just sort of strikes certain words? They probably can. And this is where we're at now. I mean, this is super Orwellian and incredibly authoritarian. You want to micromanage private conversations? By the way, how do you think people's minds get changed? In order to change their mind, they need to be allowed to say, here are my issues. Now, maybe most of the the issues that they have are bad or wrong. Maybe all of them are. But the only way you can push back and try to improve it is with dialogue. When you ban it and you become authoritarian, you just give them a, a victim mentality, and they're justified in that victim mentality. And then the thought process becomes, they're only trying to censor me because I'm the truth teller. That's what's going to happen. So you're not helping. If anything, you're hurting. This is out of this world. Now, understand something. I got my vaccine. I'm pro-vaccine. I even went after the media from the opposite position. I think they're, without even realizing it, they're raising vaccine skepticism with a lot of these headlines that are misleading, like, oh, Pfizer vaccine, only 64% effective against new Delta variant. But then when you read the specifics, you realize it's 94% effective against severe illness and hospitalization. So not 64%. That's so misleading. So I've gone after the media for being scaremongers on the vaccine and increasing vaccine hesitancy. So I'm very clear on my position on vaccines. But this is, I mean, this is just ludicrous. And you're going to breed resentment? People would be correct in feeling that resentment? Get the fuck out of our private lives. Are you kidding me? I don't want you having the ability to, you know, do anything with private text messages. What are you talking about? Or social media posts or DMs. 
That's insane. And this, again, this just only like maybe three or four outlets picked it up. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. This is huge. Now, listen, maybe there's some idiot over at Politico wrote it down wrong and it, it doesn't mean what it looks like it obviously means. If that is the case, Politico should issue a correction. And, um, you know, the Biden administration should come out and make a statement on the record. But no, 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 that's not what this means. Here's what we mean. But I'm pretty sure this is what they mean. It is what they mean. I mean, if you just, if you want people to get the vaccine, it's not that difficult. So they're doing like the vaccine lotteries and stuff. Um, that's one way to do it. But I think a better way is to just pay each, like pay people 200 bucks if they get the vaccine or 400 bucks or something. Maybe be able to increase it massively with just 100 bucks. That's, I think, tax money well spent. Hey, you know, you get another stimulus check if you get the vaccine. That'll definitely help. Censoring private text conversations, censoring social media posts, And again, I'm not saying vaccine misinformation isn't a problem. It's definitely a problem. But this is not how you deal with it. We're supposed to believe in open and honest dialogue. And by the way, I I fail to see how this doesn't violate the First Amendment either. Because this is the government taking clear anti-speech measures. Now, maybe they could wiggle out of it and make the argument, well, yeah, but we're not locking you up in a cage, so therefore it's really not a violation of the First Amendment. I guess they could try to make that argument, but I'm not buying that argument. I think this is the government restricting speech. I mean, people need to be allowed to voice their concerns. And then the way you change their mind is you engage and you explain why it's incorrect, why what they're saying is incorrect. And you know what? Some people are never going to change their mind and they're going to be permanently anti-vaccine. So be it. So be it. I don't like it, but that's life. We just got to get it up to like herd immunity level, you know, and then we'll be much better off. So, I mean, this is astonishing. And they don't, like, they don't stop and think and realize how authoritarian this is and how this will rightly breed resentment against the government. And by the way, they fuck stuff up all the time, all throughout the pandemic. Should they be censored? You know, Fauci was out there early on saying masks don't work or don't get masks. Now, he later admitted, oh, it's just because I wanted the masks for the people on the front line. But at the time, he didn't say that. At the time, he was like, nah, they're not really going to work. What? What? They've been wrong time and time and time and time again. Should they be censored? Should they be fact-checked? How are you even going to set up a ministry of truth to fact-check? There are many things we know the answers to, but there's also many things that are in a permanent gray area or in a gray area right now. And I've seen no humility from the government. There's, I don't see humble civil servants saying, I don't know about that yet. I see people giving answers and then later on being proven incorrect. So, I mean, again, they never, there can be no ministry of truth because who will fact check the fact checkers? And then who will fact check the fact checkers who fact check the fact checkers? (laughs) I mean, I know that sounds silly, but think about it. It's accurate. Wild stuff, man. Really, really wild stuff. You know, if another country was doing this, we would call it deeply authoritarian. But since we do it, we think it's smart public policy in order to get more people vaccined or to get more people a vaccine. Oh, this is dark. This is really dark.
All right, next. More on vaccines. This one's something else. Newsmax and One American News Network are known as the outlets that are to the right of Fox News. They're living up to that here. They're living up to that. So here we have a Newsmax host, and he's going to weigh in on vaccines. And this went viral for obvious reasons. I've always thought about vaccines, and I always think about just nature and the way everything works. And and I feel like a vaccination, in, in a weird way, is just generally kind of going against nature. Like, I mean, if, if there is some disease out there, maybe there's just an ebb and flow to life where something's supposed to wipe out a certain amount of people, and that's just kind of the way evolution goes. Vaccines kind of stand in the way of that. But if, if, there, if you don't have a risk, I just I can't comprehend why you would take something and they start learning about the heart inflammation and stuff like that. I just don't understand why it's being pushed so hard on people that are very young, and now they're trying to give it to kids. You saw it today, uh, you know, the, the CDC saying, that uh, going back to school in the fall, it looks like if your kid's not vaccinated, they're going to have to wear a mask next year. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. If they're not vaccinated, they have to wear a mask. I get that completely. You don't get that? So to answer his question, the reason why kids are getting vaccinated is because we're trying to reach herd immunity. And so we're trying to keep other people safe. Yes, it's very likely that if you're a kid and you get COVID, you're going to be okay. I mean, the numbers are overwhelming in that direction. But again, in order to hit herd immunity, they want to get vaccinated. And in order to keep other people safe, they want to get vaccinated. And then also, the, the issues associated with COVID are much more deadly and more dangerous statistically to you than any of the potential side effects from the vaccines. Now, there are instances of certain side effects with the vaccine, of course. A very common thing is people for a day or two have mild flu-like symptoms. Whether you get a headache or you get the chills or you get a fever, very common. You have it for like a day or two. In my case, I was fortunate. I didn't have many side effects at all. The only side effect I had was just a headache for like three hours, 24 hours after I got the vaccine. But then I, then I was good. Um, and there are instances. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the bad boy vaccine, as I call it, which is the one I got, is uh, they had the issue with blood clots, which super rare of millions and millions of vaccines given there were very few people who had um, a blood clotting issue, but the blood clotting issue was significantly less than that brought about by birth control. So birth control is way more dangerous and gives more people blood clots. But there was a a panic around it for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. They temporarily uh, halted it and then they brought it back, realizing it was safe. Now there's, uh, you know, issues of what's called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which I think is an autoimmune disorder or nerve disorder. It, It, 100 people out of millions got it for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And then there's potentially other issues with the mRNA vaccine. They guess it's the new way of doing the vaccine, whereas the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccine are really the old technology of the vaccine that we use for the regular flu shot every year. Um, now, I get some people might be concerned about long-term effects uh, of the vaccines, and so they feel like hesitant because, you know, they don't know how it's going to go. But all the data that we have as of right now is that for the overwhelming majority of people who get any of the vaccines, um, there aren't really many downsides at all, and you are protected against COVID. In fact, in all the original trials, COVID was, uh, you know, the vaccines were 100% effective against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. So in other words, if you get the vaccine, even if you get COVID, it's very likely to just be like you have a cold, and then you're fine. So that's what the data shows. So the re- one of the reasons why you'd want to get 
kids vaccinated is because, yes, even though a small number of uh, the kids would get hospitalized or die from COVID, that's more deadly than the even smaller side effects they would get from the vaccine. So it's funny because people, they don't do that like cost-benefit analysis when they talk about this issue. What people who are anti-vaccine do is they like to only talk about the side effects of the vaccine and like omit the fact that if you don't get the vaccine, there's a much higher likelihood of you getting COVID and an even higher likelihood of you dying from COVID than having some weird side effects from the vaccine. So anyway, um, so the kids not being vaccinated having uh, to wear a mask, I understand that completely. Uh, The reason you want to get kids vaccinated is because herd immunity and, and keeping other people safe. But the main thing everybody's talking about here, understandably so, is his point about how vaccines are like against nature. Okay, so was the smallpox vaccine. And we eliminated smallpox in the West. Should we not have done the smallpox vaccine, which saved so many lives? The polio vaccine is against nature. Helped us eradicate polio. Should we not have done the polio vaccine? Because it's against nature. Let's just allow the diseases and the viruses and whatever to run rampant because any sort of medical intervention or even surgical intervention is, uh, is unnatural. Do you see how ridiculous that argument is? I mean, you could just pick apart his daily life. He's in an air-conditioned studio. The AC is unnatural. The studio is unnatural. Um, he took a car to work. That's unnatural. If he took a plane in the past month, the plane is unnatural. Metal tube flying through the air at 600 miles an hour. That's all unnatural. By the way, you want to know some things that are natural? Human shit is natural. Would it be okay if you inject that into your bloodstream or eat it? Because, hey, it's natural. You know what else is natural? Anthrax. It's created when animals die. Uh, and if anth- anthrax is, of course, terrible for human beings, but it's natural. So should you put that in your body because it's natural? Um, poisonous mushrooms are natural. They're grown in nature. Probably shouldn't put that in your body, right? So there are many things that are natural that you shouldn't put in your body and are not okay. And there's many things that are unnatural, so to speak, that are wonderful and that we love. It's just a, shit, it's just a terrible point. It's a, it's a fallacy on its own. That, I don't know what it's called, but I guess it's called like the natural fallacy or whatever. But the idea that because it's natural, it must be good and something that's unnatural must be bad. Plenty of unnatural things are good. Plenty of natural things are bad, and many natural things are good, and many unnatural things are bad. You know, it's, the world is a complex place. So that is not, that's just a shitty argument. It's a terrible argument. And then the other thing is, he actually had the nerve to say, maybe it's supposed to wipe out a certain number of people. Really? So that's how you're going to swat aside about 605,000 deaths in the U.S. and over 4 million in the world. That's how you're going to talk about it? You're going to casually swat it aside like that? That is what he's going to do. Four million deaths, 605,000 deaths in the U.S. Maybe it's uh, supposed to happen. Maybe this is just the way it works. Well, I wouldn't want you to be my doctor, and I certainly wouldn't want you to be the president, because imagine going into the office of this guy, and as a doctor, he's like, nah, got to let things run its course. It's that simple. There you go. He's the president. Sir, what should we do? A pandemic is ripping through the country and killing untold numbers of people. Well natural, so it is what it is. Just so silly. They, again, they're really living up to their name of being to the right of Fox News here. 
And not only are they to the right politically, but they're also significantly dumber. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about the Medicare for All March and Cornell West and uh, got some more on Biden. Squeaky Ben Shapiro made it in the show today. Stay right there, guys. Still got a lot of stuff coming
we're going to keep it moving. I had a really, uh, I had a really good time prepping this show because there's so many stories that I really care deeply about in here. Okay. Let's do the Medicare for All story. Medicare for All story. Thankfully, it looks like there are some people in the country who have simply had enough of corrupt politicians, lying politicians, politicians who talk a good game but then end up not lifting a finger to fight for the right things. So there's a new Medicare for All march that I just learned about the other day. Let me go ahead and uh, show you some of this here. March for Medicare for All, and it's hashtag M4M4All, taking place on July 24th, 2021. And um, it's happening in a lot of places. So you have Albuquerque, New Mexico, Atlanta, Georgia, Austin, Texas, um, that city that I've never heard of in Minnesota, Boston, Massachusetts, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Chicago, Illinois, Columbus, Ohio. Corvallis, Oregon, Denver, Colorado, Detroit, Michigan, Fayetteville, Arkansas, Greensboro, North Carolina, Honolulu, Hawaii, Huntsville, Alabama, uh, Irvine, California, Kansas City, Missouri, Las Vegas, Nevada, Little Rock, Arkansas, Los Angeles, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Madison, Wisconsin, Manchester, New Hampshire, geez, uh, Medford, Oregon, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, New York, New York, Newark, New Jersey, Olympia, Washington, Omaha, Nebraska, Orlando, Florida, Phoenix, Arizona, um, Pittsburgh, Portland, Port, uh, Portland, Oregon, Portland, Maine, Reno, Rochester, Salida, Colorado, Salt Lake City, Utah, San Diego, California, San Francisco, California, Seattle, Washington, Sylvia, North Carolina, Tampa, Florida, and uh, Washington, D.C. in Washington. Or, excuse me, Washington, D.C., which is Washington, D.C. <laughs> Washington, D.C. is not in Washington State. Excuse me. I'm a moron. So, anyway, um, if you scroll through the site, uh, you'll see... There's a, you know, a portion where you can put in your, you know, your personal story as to why you feel like we absolutely need Medicare for all. And it looks like a bunch of people have participated in that. Um, they're also, uh, you know, basically trying to push. I like this a lot. They're basically trying to push Biden to use the authority that he already has. It, it was actually originally under Obamacare, but they, he, what he can do is do an emergency executive order um, using a portion of uh, the Social Security Act, Biden 1881A today. Oh, excuse me, that's not, that's not the thing I'm, I was going to talk about. Oh, it, it is the thing I'm talking about. There it is, 1881A of the Social Security Act. Yeah. Um, so that is from, there's this article, I believe it was written from, by David Dayen in the American Prospect, where he details how... Under Obamacare, there's a provision that basically gives like one city or town in the U.S. single-payer health care, and they get it because of um, it's an emergency, and that town was ruined in some industrial accident, and a lot of people there get sick. And so the idea is if there's an emergency and everybody desperately needs health care, 
then the president has the authority to enact it via executive order. So I think Dayan's argument was you can start with doing that just for people's medical bills in regard to COVID, and then you can expand it to, well, while we're doing it for COVID, how is COVID any different from, you know, cancer treatment? If COVID treatment should be free, because they got it through no fault of their own, shouldn't cancer treatment be free? Shouldn't any illness treatment be free? Why shouldn't it all be free? And uh, it should. It should. So, but I like that they're, what they're doing is they want to protest to try to pressure Biden to say, we're done with the shit. Do Medicare for all right now. As you guys know, I mention this all the time. There's an old saying, if you shoot for the stars, you might reach the moon. And if you put enough pressure and if there's enough bodies in the street, I'm under no illusions. I don't think Biden will sign that. I don't think anybody at the protest thinks Biden is going to sign that. But you can move the Overton window. You could push the conversation. You could get some of the Congress people to sign on. Now we're up to like 118 co-sponsors for Medicare for all. But also, you might end up getting something. You might end up getting a new push for a public option. You might end up getting, um, you know, lowering the Medicare age to 55 or 60. By the way, we just got news last night that in this reconciliation package that Democrats agreed to in committee, it's $3.5 trillion, and it includes expansion of Medicare to include dental and vision and some other things. It's not expansion to 60 and up or 55 and up, but, you know, this is what we're talking about here. We're talking about a clear step in the right direction. Now it's probably going to get slapped down by Mansion and Cinema or watered down even more, so hold your horses on celebrating that one. But bottom line is, we're outsiders. We don't need to play the insider game. In fact, we do better when we play on our terms and on our turf. And so what we should do is get out there and push the politicians, whoever's in power right now. We don't need to wait another election cycle or another election cycle or eight election cycles. Go fight right now and force it and move the Overton window. So, you know, I'm totally supportive of this march. Listen, got to be honest with you guys, I don't really know who started it and who's involved and how many people have committed, but I don't really care. And, and here's why. If you're fighting for the right thing, the time is always right to do what's right. And if you're fighting for the right thing, even if you come up woefully short, you can put your head down on your pillow at night and you could sleep like a baby knowing you were fighting for the right thing. And you were on the front lines of what is effectively like a new civil rights movement. You know, there will be future generations. I don't know how long in the future it's going to be, but they'll look back and say, could you believe there was a time where we, everybody didn't have health care? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. You want to lead that fight. You absolutely want to lead that fight. So this, uh, this march actually came under fire recently uh, because there was a scandal. They were either pranked or like infiltrated by some far right people. And what happened is a notorious white nationalist, a guy by the name of Matthew Heimbach, was put on as a speaker at one of the marches for Medicare for All. Uh, and he was put on some promotional material. Now, the reason I know it was either a prank or they, will, they were infiltrated is because the name on the thing was changed. It wasn't Matthew Heimbach. It was Matthew H. Bach. And so, listen, I recognize him because I'm a massive political junkie, but not everybody's a massive political junkie. Some of these people just want health care. So they didn't realize it. It slipped through the cracks. And then what happened is, as soon as they learned about it and there was pushback, they were mortified. They immediately removed him. They immediately denounced him and white nationalism and white supremacy and everything. 
Um, they apologized, and then they kept moving forward. And listen, that's all you can do. And I'm incredibly sympathetic when there are roadblocks and speed bumps, even big ones, because I know how hard it is to try to build something official and build something real, being involved in Justice Democrats. And I know that it, when it, you look at a bureaucracy and you look at so many people involved and there's so many moving parts, it's nearly impossible to manage. So do I look at that mistake and now all of a sudden what? I'm not in favor of Medicare for all and I'm not in favor of protesting for Medicare for all? Of course not. Of course I'm in favor. Like, that shouldn't prevent you from wanting to get up and fight for the things that are right and the things that are just and the things that are moral and ethical and correct. So I don't care about their mistake. It was, a, it was a mistake, and we're past it. And now they want to get out there and march for Medicare for All. So anyway, the reason I'm doing this segment is to tell everybody, July 24th, you see all the cities it's happening in. Um, you know, I'll leave the link to the thing in the video description box if you want to get in touch with some of the people involved and you want to show up to the Medicare for All march. Again, it, you know, these things take time, and the way you eventually win is by relentlessly fighting. And a beautiful flower started off as a little seed or a bulb, and right now we might be in the bulb phase or the seed phase or whatever. We might be a tiny caterpillar that will eventually become a butterfly, but you've got to start somewhere. And I respect the fact that these people are starting with something, and there's nothing I agree with more than direct issue advocacy. And that's what this is. The funny thing is, the reason why I like it so much is because it's so hard to tarnish direct issue advocacy as anything other than what it is. But of course, people had done that because they looked at the mistake with the white nationalists and they were like, ah, now we're against this. You look at a mistake and now people shouldn't have health care? That doesn't make any sense. So anyway, um, get out there if you want to march on this, if you want to fight on this. Um, no matter what, you're helping and it's gonna feel great and maybe this starts as one thing and then maybe you end up doing it every month and then maybe you know it, eventually it hit the tipping point but you gotta keep moving you gotta stay in motion and you gotta fight for what's right and I don't need to do this next part of the rant but I'm gonna do it because it's directly pertinent why should you do this in the United States, up to 60,000 people die every year from lack of health care. If you're not fighting that, you're sort of co-signing that. You know, you're resigned to that fate. Sometimes the number is as low as 27,000. Sometimes it's as high as 60,000. That is unacceptable. Unacceptable. In this country, medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy. That's unacceptable. A medical bankruptcy is not a thing in any other developed country. We're also the only developed country that just doesn't have universal health care. In our system, there's price gouging at every le level. The health care providers are price gouging you. The health insurance companies are price gouging you. And big pharma is price gouging you. That's why I say there's a scam on top of a scam within a scam. And our politicians aren't doing anything to fight back against that. Unacceptable. It's because these big corporate interests effectively own the government and run the government. That's all got to stop. We got to stop all that stuff. Medicare for All would save $5.1 trillion over a decade. That's not me speaking. That is a, a detailed study from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. $5.1 trillion over a decade. So not only is it the moral and ethical thing to do, it's also the fiscally responsible thing to do. 
You're going to have no more premiums, no more co-pays, no more deductibles under Medicare for All system. And by the way, nobody's going to tell you where you can and can't go to see a doctor. Right now, if you have health insurance, sometimes you want to go to a doctor and they say, you can't go. That doctor is not in network. So they micromanage you. In a Medicare for All system, they don't do that. And listen, I'm, you guys know me. I like to fancy myself a data guy, a, a stats guy, a facts guy, and I try to make up my mind based on the empirical evidence. But also, as you know, you've heard this story before if you're a longtime listener of this show, but this is also personal to me because uh, the way that my dad passed away was uh, shocking. Shocking in some ways, not so shocking in other ways. I'll explain it. Uh, so he was a smoker virtually his entire life. And um, he had this severe back pain towards the end of his life. And what he would do is he would go to the chiropractor. The reason he would go to the chiropractor is because it was inexpensive, and the guy convinced him, I'm going to make you better. Back might hurt. We'll fix that. So he would go to the chiropractor, he'd go to the chiropractor, he'd go to the chiropractor. And um, my dad was also sort of naive and a little dumb, and he thought that, like, the chiropractor is a real doctor. Like, a chiropractor is like a back doctor. Um, he didn't understand that it's really like a glorified backcracker and more of a masseuse than a doctor, if you will. Um, some, some chiropractors believe in subluxation theory, which is this idea that you'll never have illness or disease if we just keep your spine straight. Those, doctors are, uh, those chiropractors are not doctors. They're total cranks, and it's pseudoscience. There's others who know what they are. They're like glorified backcrackers, and those who are honest about it, fine. They're fine, whatever. But he would keep going to this chiropractor, and his back pain got worse and worse and worse. Eventually, he went to the emergency room. One of the reasons he held off going to the emergency room, other than the fact that, you know, the chiropractor was basically telling him, hey, come here, we'll take care of it, you'll be fine. But one of the other reasons he held off is because he didn't have insurance. And he knew it would be expensive if he went to, a, like, a doctor doctor, like the emergency room, you know, or to a hospital or whatever. Couldn't take the pain, went to the emergency room. They found out that that pain he was dealing with in his back was a tumor. He had lung cancer, and it metastasized to his spine. And it was stage four. So they immediately did um, surgery within the first two or three days because it was that devastating that they needed to do it immediately. It, it was unsuccessful. They weren't able to get off as much of the tumor as they wanted. Um, and he was basically, he basically was a death sentence. He didn't have long to live. I was so naive at the time, I didn't really understand what was going on. I didn't understand that he really had very, very limited time. Um, but soon thereafter, like a couple weeks, he was dead. And again, so I blame a couple things. The pseudoscience charlatan chiropractor who was taking advantage of my father and at no point said, you should go to a real doctor. Hey, come back. We'll take care of it. I'll crack your back in this way or that way, and it'll be fixed. You won't have any back pain. So I blame that guy, and I blame pseudoscience, junk science charlatans, alternative medicine, which if it was real medicine, it'd just be called medicine. But then I also blame the fact that he didn't have insurance, and he was afraid of what a bill would look like if he went to the hospital. So he put it off as long as he could. Now, listen, again, I don't know for sure. I can't read my dad's mind. I don't know for sure if the chiropractor's thing was enough to keep him just going back there. Um, maybe it was. And so maybe my rant comes to naught and Medicare for All wouldn't have saved my dad's life. But there's a non-zero chance that it would have if he could have just gone to the doctor and not paid anything out of pocket. The whole, the whole thing is criminal, in my opinion. Our whole system is criminal, and it's unacceptable. And so I'm in favor of any and all ways of fighting back. And I respect everybody who's deciding to take action and get out there and try to fight. 
I don't care how many people show up. You know, I don't care if it's three people in each city. I have nothing but respect for all three people who show up in each city. So I wish these guys the best. Uh, if any of you on July 24th want to go ahead and march with them, highly recommend it. Um, and I hope this eventually gets big enough. I don't know if this event on its own will be big enough for the actual media to cover it, but maybe if we keep doing it, maybe eventually they'll cover it. And maybe politicians will start to get, you know, a wake-up call. I know it's naive. I know it's a long shot. But the alternative is sitting on our ass and doing nothing. And I'm not in favor of that. Okay, next. So Cornell West has officially resigned from Harvard. And, um, you know, the breakup has been a little bit ugly. They treated him very unfairly and unkind. Um, he was on Crystal Kyle and Friends a while ago, and he's such a lovely guy. He's, he's a beautiful person off air. He's just as amazing as he is on air. And he was so, you know, thankful at the fact that we had, like, a real substantive conversation with him. Um, just an amazing person. Just kindest soul you can imagine. So I want to read you his resignation letter here, and then we'll talk about it. So he released this publicly, June 30th, 2021. Uh, I hope and pray, he, he just released this the other day, but it was sent to Harvard on June 30th, 2021. I hope and pray you and your family are well. This summer is a scorcher. Here's my brief and candid letter of resignation. How sad is it to see our beloved Harvard Divinity School in such decline and decay? The disarray of a scattered curriculum, the disenchantment of talented yet deferential faculty, and the disorientation of precious students loom large. When I arrived four years ago with a salary less than what I received 15 years earlier and with no tenure status after being a university professor at Harvard and Princeton, I hoped and prayed I could still end my career with some semblance of intellectual intensity and personal respect. How wrong I was. With a few glorious and glaring exceptions, the shadow of Jim Crow was cast in its new glittering form expressed in the language of superficial diversity. All my courses were subsumed under Afro-American religious studies, including those on existentialism, American democracy, and the conduct of life. No possible summer salary alongside the lowest increase possible every year. Yet, I delivered two convocation addresses and one commencement speech in four years. I was promised a year sabbatical, but could only take one semester in practice. And to witness a faculty enthusiastically support a candidate for tenure, then timidly defer to a rejection based on the Harvard administration's hostility to the Palestinian cause was disgusting. We all knew the mendacious reasons, reasons given had nothing to do with academic standards. When my committee recommended a tenure review, also rejected by the Harvard administration, I knew my academic achievements and student teaching meant far less than their political prejudices. Even my good friends in the Afro-American and African Studies Department were paralyzed, given their close relationship to the administration. And after teaching extra courses, including five courses in one year, this silence continued. When the announcement of the death of my beloved mother appeared in the regular newsletter, I received two public replies, uh, public replies excuse me, just as that of my colleague, Dr. Jacqueline Olga Cook-Rivers, who received none when her beloved mother died. Any ordinary announcement about a lecture, award, or professional advancement receives about 20 replies. 
the kind of narcissistic academic professionalism, cowardly deference to the anti-Palestinian prejudices of the Harvard administration, and indifference to my mother's death constitute an intellectual and spiritual bankruptcy of deep depths. Depths. In my case, a serious commitment to Veritas requires resignation. With precious memories, but absolutely no regrets, Cornell West. Wow. So um, let me highlight the key portions for you and, uh, and sum it up. He wasn't given tenure, even though he should have been given tenure. He was paid worse than he was 15 years ago. All of his courses were under Afro-American religious studies, even though a lot of those courses had nothing to do with Afro-American religious studies. So existentialism, he taught about American democracy, the conduct of life. All of that somehow was under Afro-American studies. It's almost like they typecast him and just put him in that position. Um, even despite being mistreated, he did three big speeches, which is, you know, he's also doing a little bit of a favor for the institution, even though the institution's stabbing him in the back. He was denied a full sabbatical, even though he, he was promised one. He, was, he still went on to teach extra courses, thinking, hey, maybe this will get me my tenure or more my full sabbatical or whatever. Um, it didn't. And he was, for all that he did for Harvard, he was rewarded with virtual silence when his mother died. And he viewed that as basically the last straw. And so he left. And um, listen, he says the main thing he feels that, took us down this path was that he was a staunch advocate for Palestinian rights, staunch advocate for it, and he was institutionally crushed as a result of it. We've talked about it before, but one of the key issues on the forefront of the free speech fight, it's Palestinian rights and Palestinian justice. We have states all across this country that have tried to crack down on BDS, boycotts, divestment, and sanctions, even to the point where in Texas, in order for you to receive relief money from a hurricane, you needed to say, I'll never sign on to boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel. So we have speech restricting the criticism of Israel in this country. You're allowed to criticize the United States of America, but in many instances, you're not allowed to criticize Israel. An insane crackdown on freedom of speech. Insane crackdown. And those anti-BDS laws have popped up all across the country. You know, there's been, when you talk about academic freedom, there's been a number of professors who have, you know, had retribution taken against them because they speak out for Palestinian rights. So this is a very high-profile example of that, and it's unacceptable. As I said, from a personal perspective, he's one of the most lovely people I've ever dealt with in my life. He's full of love and acceptance and joy, and uh, he loves life. And to have this, one of the top living intellectuals of our time, be disrespected and besmirched like this is unacceptable. It's totally unacceptable. And this should help people understand and realize. Um, when we talk about free speech, it's always going to be the left that's on the chopping block. Because a true commitment to left values is a true commitment to anti-establishment politics. And if you're questioning the establishment, if you're questioning the powers that be and the status quo, they don't take kindly to that. And they definitionally have the power. And so they'll come after you. So everybody be careful what you wish for if you cheer on censorship and deplatforming, um, because 
any crackdown on free speech or academic freedom or free expression does not end well. And this is a great example of it right here. I feel really bad for Cornell West. I'm sure some, some other um, you know, university will pick them up and they'll definitely be lucky to have them, but this does not speak well of Harvard, not at all. Okay. All right, now, Biden was called out by a Democrat and a Republican. This is actually really interesting. I will say it's a little late, but better late than never, as the saying goes. Okay, here we go. Joe Biden was finally, finally called out for his illegal and unconstitutional act in Syria, where he's now bombed repeatedly. So Representative Andy Biggs, a Republican, and Barbara Lee, a Democrat, uh, wrote this bipartisan piece uh, directly to Biden, demanding a response. Let me read it for you. Dear President Biden, The recent U.S. airstrikes on the Iraq-Syria border raise major constitutional concerns. We request that you brief members of Congress on the threats faced by our troops overseas and the specific imminent threat that precipitated this use of military force. On June 27, 2021, the Department of Defense announced that the U.S. had conducted a military operation against operational and weapons storage facilities in Iraq and Syria. The DOD's announcement stated, at President Biden's direction, U.S. military forces earlier this evening conducted defensive precision airstrikes against facilities used by Iran-backed militia groups in the Iraq-Syria border region. The DOD announced announcement contained little specific information about what threat precipitated this strike. In the weeks since that, the attack, Congress remains underinformed about said threat. When President Trump conducted the airstrike that killed Qasem Soleimani in January 2020, you said that his administration's assertion that the strike was conducted in self-defense was not adequate because his administration did not supply the necessary evidence to support that conclusion. Your administration's claim that this recent action was necessary to defend our troops, likewise, must be accompanied by evidence necessary to support the conclusion that our troops were in danger in this instance. In your notification of Congress, you said, quote, I directed this discreet military action consistent with my responsibility to protect United States citizens both at home and abroad, and in furtherance of United States national security and foreign policy interests, pursuant to my constitutional authority to conduct United States foreign relations and as Commander-in-Chief and Chief Executive. The Constitution of the United States gives Congress the power to declare war and the President the power to prosecute the war. The Constitution does not give the President, as Commander-in-Chief, unlimited power to make war. As President Washington put so eloquently, the Constitution vests the power of declaring war in Congress Therefore, no offensive expedition of importance can be undertaken until after they shall have deliberated upon the subject and authorized such measure. Article 2 of the Constitution only gives the president the power to repel immediate or imminent threats. It does not give the executive branch the power to conduct a war without congressional approval. We would appreciate a written reply to the following questions. What notification did the administration provide to members of Congress before launching this airstrike? 
What immediate threat did our troops face that drove the conclusion that immediate military action was the necessary and appropriate response? How does your administration define immediate or imminent when assessing threats? Do you believe that Article 2 gives the executive branch unlimited power to decide when to engage in military strikes in foreign nations? Why? If these questions cannot be provided in written form due to national security concerns, we request a classified briefing in which the information can be shared. We look forward to hearing from you ahead of August 1st. Thank you for your prompt response and your willingness to work with us to restore Congress's preeminent constitutional role over decisions of war and peace. So my only criticism of this is an obvious one. Too little, too late. So this is significantly after the fact. You have a Republican and a Democrat who are nominally anti-war saying, what the hell is this? But I don't know. You guys tell me, am I wrong? I don't think I saw anybody speak up at the time and say, at the time, Mr. President, this is unconstitutional and this is illegal. You do not have the authority to do it. It is a war crime. By the way, also, they say precision missile. Nonsense. There were civilians that died. There were civilians that died. And we talked about it. One of the few outlets that was talking about this serious strike. So they're demanding accountability. They're demanding answers. But here's the other portion. Let's say Biden doesn't respond or he doesn't give adequate responses. What are you going to do then? What are you going to do then? And this is my biggest frustration because it always seems like the, the things that make the most noise and get the most headlines are not the substantive things. They tried to impeach Trump over, you know, the Ukraine phone call when he was violating the Emoluments Clause, and he also was committing war crimes. Trump's first military act as president killed a young American girl. So if you were going to impeach, why wouldn't you impeach over that illegal, unconstitutional strike that killed a young American girl? That's insane. Obama. Obama killed uh, Abdul Rahman al-Awlaki, Anwar al-Awlaki's son. He was 16-year-old. He was American. 16 years old, no due process, nothing, and they murdered him. That's illegal. That's unconstitutional. If anybody was going to talk about impeachment, it should have been over that. But, you know, the media doesn't do a good job of focusing on the things that matter, and the politicians in the moment don't do a good job of focusing on the things that matter. So he did an illegal and unconstitutional strike, and he's probably going to get away with it. And whether he responds or doesn't respond, I don't think this story is going to blow up. And it's a shame you have to come here to hear this letter. Because, by the way, this letter is spot on. Everything Biden said, he had the nerve to say, protecting Americans at home and abroad. That's why we did this. Protecting Americans at home and abroad? That's why you did this strike? Who was under threat at home? Who was under threat at home? Shia militias on the border of Iraq and Syria were going to what? Attack Boise, Idaho? What are you saying? Nobody was threatened at home. By the way, the strikes that happened um, in Iraq were they hit an empty base and no Americans got hurt. And Biden used that to say, well, now we got to go attack them. When you're occupying a country illegally and then somebody tries to attack you guys, you don't understand that they're allowed to do that legally and you're not allowed to do that? You're not allowed to fight back? You're in the country illegally. The U.S. is occupying Syria, a third of Syria, and taking their oil, by the way. Start under Trump, continuing under Biden. Then large portions of the country are, uh, you know, jihadist rebels control large portions of the country, and then you have the area that Assad and the Syrian government control. We're illegally occupying a country, and then we strike and say, well, we had to do it. What are you talking about? Under what authority? There is no direct threat of violence, 
and you can't make the claim that this has anything to do with 9-11 and the war on terror because you're bombing the people who are fighting al-Qaeda and ISIS. You don't understand that? These Shia militias are fighting jihadists. I'm not saying you have to like them. I'm not saying they don't have other issues, but that is what they're doing, and you're fighting them, de facto serving as the jihadist's air force. And end, this all started with what? The assassination of Qasem Soleimani, and then they're, you know, they're trying to get revenge and retribution for that. They've been doing that. They did it under Trump. Now they're doing it under Biden. And then we respond and we say, oh, this is how we establish dominance, and then we de-escalate. It's just escalating. Now, all the time we see stories about, you know, there are attacks happening in Iraq and Syria. If you don't want the U.S. to be hit in Iraq or Syria, here's an idea. Get the hell out of Iraq and Syria. We shouldn't be there anyway. It's unbelievable stuff. It really is. So I'm happy they wrote this letter, but if the letter is all you got, I don't like that, man. Don't give me a letter. You should speak out against it at the time, and you should be hair on fire, and yes, you should threaten some sort of action against them, potential impeachment, hearings, something, because the president should not be able to bomb whenever and wherever for whatever reason they want and then lie about it afterwards. And that's where we're at. Whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican president, they bomb first, ask questions later. Bomb first, present a rationalization later. I don't want the authority to casually be with any U.S. president. Yeah, you could just attack whenever, wherever. That's what I'm saying. When Trump assassinated the top commander, Qasem Soleimani, that's so beyond dangerous and reckless. You have no idea. I mean, it could have gotten a lot, a lot worse directly after that because you are sparking, I mean, you are raising tensions massively and guaranteeing revenge and retribution and uh, sparking a worse conflict, and he just casually did it even though it was illegal, even though it was unconstitutional. But now we're at the point where, eh, it's all a matter of opinion. I'll give you some bullshit rationale, and then I'm going to do it, and you can shut up about it. This is crazy. I mean, I I even think the War Powers Act is unconstitutional, at least aspects of it. So I think it should always have to go through Congress when it comes to war, not some nonsense of, sure, there actually is an imminent threat. But if there's not an imminent threat, and and we attack, and then we pretend like there was an imminent threat, if it's proven there's not, shouldn't there be consequences for that? I mean, it makes Joe Biden a war criminal, of course. So this is where we are now. The president could just bomb willy-nilly whenever, and the most pushback we get is a letter, a bipartisan letter saying, please, sir, tell me under what authority you did this. There is no real authority. It was made up, and you know that. And it should be the case that everybody knows that, but the media doesn't do a good, job, good enough job of educating people. But now you guys know. All right, next. Madison Cawthorn is called a rising star in the Republican Party. Um, He was at CPAC. He gave an interview, and this little portion sort of blew up for obvious reasons. So what type of ammunition? What would be the number one, number two talking point that you would encourage them to use at home to take back their cities? Biggest one is I would encourage people, don't look at the person, look at the policy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are, you know, that, that might, you know, Barack Obama, an incredible speaker, made you feel like you wanted to go grab a beer with the guy. It's fantastic. But then you look at his policies, like, you are a, you're a communist. <laughs> there you go. You want to, you're a globalist. You want to just have 
all power is concentrated into the top 1% of the 1% of the 1% and take all rights away from everybody else. And so don't look at the person, look at the policies, because right now what's at stake is the future for the next generation, and stop sending cookie-cutter politicians to Washington, D.C. that have pleaded pants and tassel loafers. And, and, and now they're starting to talk about going door-to-door to be able to take vaccines to the people. If, think about the mechanisms they would have to build to be able to actually execute that massive thing. And then think about the, what those mechanisms could be used for. They could then go door-to-door take your guns. They can go door to door, take your Bible. Yeah. And so it's a, uh, it's serious. And brother, I've got to get backstage, but yeah, man, I absolutely appreciate it. I look forward it. to being on your show another time. Yeah. Imagine thinking Joe Biden is going to take guns or Bibles. Yeah, that guy's going to do gun or Bible confiscation. I, I find this stuff incredible. First of all, Joe is a religious man himself. He's Catholic. Catholic is under the branch of Christianity. So, in theory, he believes in the Bible. You know, his religion nominally believes in the Bible. Why would he confiscate Bibles? Why would he do that? Even on the gun front, the Democrats have been very upfront and honest about the things that they support. And, you know, the strongest pieces of legislation that you'd ever see from Democrats is, like, ban on just assault weapons, um, ban on high-capacity magazines, universal background checks, Things of that nature, things that will still, I mean, we have hundreds of millions of guns in this country, and most of them would be totally left alone. And it, by the way, none of the, the regulations are retroactive. So it's not like, hey, we're going to ban assault weapons, and so if you already have them, we're going to like come and take them from your home. No, it would be from here on out. They can't sell them anymore. But I don't even think they're going to be able to do that. So this conversation is null and void. It's a moot point. Like, none of that's going to happen. But this is what I'm talking about. These people live in a fantasy world. I have a thousand criticisms of Joe Biden, and I voice them on the show every day. But look at the kind of criticisms coming from the right. Oh, because they want everybody to get vaccines. That same program used to vaccinate people is going to be used or can be used for gun confiscation or Bible confiscation. It's so absurd. The thought that it ever crossed his mind is pathetic. Never mind the fact he actually said it. He said the words out loud. Embarrassing. And then... I find it hilarious that he says, look, my advice to everybody is don't look at the person, look at the policies. Because I agree with that. But then he goes on to not mention any policies. What does he say? Obama's a communist. Barack Obama is a communist. Barack Obama. The private sector grew under his presidency. He created a lot of private sector jobs. Government actually shrank under his presidency. He didn't nationalize dick. He didn't give, you know, workers the means of production. On what planet is he a communist? These people are so disconnected from reality. It's unbelievable. And then his reasoning, by the way, is, oh, he's a communist because he wants to grow the 1% and give all the power to the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. And what do you think Trump did? I mean, Trump, his biggest legislative accomplishment was a tax cut bill where 83% of the benefits go to the top 1% in the long run. By the way, I'm not, even, I'm not even arguing that Obama didn't help the 1%. He did help the 1%. But number one, that doesn't make him a communist. Number two, the Republicans are just as bad, if not worse, when it comes to serving the 1%. Who are you kidding? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Rising star. Rising star in the Republican Party. A guy who completely talks out of his ass and says insane things. I don't understand how this has appeal to anybody.
I don't get it. You know, even this, he's supposed to be part of the new, like, populist right or whatever. Well, I'm going to take a page from your book, Madison. I'm going to look at the policies. I'm not going to look at the individual. So Josh Hawley, who's supposed to be, like, the leader of this populist right, you know, resurgence or whatever, he wasn't even for a $15 minimum wage. Populist right my ass cheeks. He's not even for a $15 minimum wage. He's not even for the PRO Act which is pro-union legislation. He's supported, like, different right-to-work laws, which is anti-union legislation. You're not populist if you're not for raising the minimum wage and you're not for unions. You're not populist. So when you look at the policies, there are no elected populist right people. So this is uh, frustrating, and um, we're going to have to deal with this guy for however many decades, which is annoying. All right, time to talk about Squeaky. Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro, we got Squeaky Ben Shapiro made it in the show today. So he um, is talking about the protests in Cuba. Not at all surprised that he's doing that. It's interesting. I don't, I'm not sure. You guys tell me. Did he talk about what's happening in Colombia? How there have been protests for months and there's been an uprising for months. Did he talk about What's happening in Ethiopia? There's ethnic cleansing going on there. What about Myanmar, where there's, you know, the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya Muslim population? Did he talk about Haiti in any detail? There's a number of places, as all of you guys know, the Congo, Sudan, Yemen, where the U.S. is actively helping facilitate a genocide being carried out by Saudi Arabia against the Yemeni people where they're starving the country, they're not allowing food or medicine in. Have you talked about these other countries where there's massive unrest and protests and all these gigantic problems? Don't think he's talked about it with the same kind of urgency and speed that he's talked about uh, Cuba. But nonetheless, he decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and uh, talk about Cuba. But he somehow makes it about Colin Kaepernick. Watch. And so I have a proposal. One for one trade. Every single dissident who wants to fly the American flag and believes in American freedom, for all of the Americans who spit on the American flag and see it as a symbol of repression and evil. How about that? Will we make that trade right now? Now, in reality, American citizens can't be expelled simply because they don't like the flag because we do have freedom of speech. But in principle, the folks who are marching in Cuba for liberty right now and flying the American flag are better Americans than the Americans who stands around spitting on the American flag and pretending that it is a symbol of repression and evil. You know who those people are? People who have never lived under true repression and evil. Seriously. If you live under the threat of true repression and evil, the American flag is the symbol of liberty. If you live in America, a place of liberty, we have this ungrateful, rather despicable distaste for our own freedom. We've gotten so used to being fat and lazy and rich and free that we seem to forget that there are people all over the planet who live like that, and that for most of human history, none of that was the rule. And meanwhile, you have, again, the sickening specter of Americans kneeling for the American flag while living in the richest and freest country in the history of the world. I promise you, Colin Kaepernick would not trade places with any one of these Cuban dissidents. I promise you, Ilhan Omar would not be trading places with any one of the people living in Hong Kong right now. 
None of these people ever are willing to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to ripping the United States and talking about how evil it is. So there's a number of things to say. First of all, if you watch his entire segment, he doesn't mention the U.S. embargo on Cuba once. He doesn't mention it. And I have to say, anybody who's talking about the issue of Cuba and they don't bring up the embargo, they're either incredibly ignorant on the facts or they're stupid or they're lying to you for ideological reasons. Now, you could take your pick. I'm not going to say which of those things Ben Shapiro is, but you can determine for yourself which one you think is the most accurate. But it is incredibly dishonest to talk about what's happening in Cuba without bringing up the U.S. embargo. We have 240 sanctions on that country. The protests were very clear. There's a shortage of food. There's a shortage of medical supplies. They want more food. They want more medical supplies. If the U.S. lifts the embargo, that would instantly help the people of Cuba. It's not an opinion. That's a fact. So to not bring that up and to pretend like, oh, no, it's all just for they're protesting for freedom and democracy. Mm, That's your interpretation. When they said up front, immediately, the very first thing was shortage of food and shortage of medical supplies. And by the way, Ben omits what? There are now uh, pro-government protests that are just as big as the anti-government ones. But he omits that. He's going to omit everything that doesn't fit his narrative. That's what Ben Shapiro does. To not bring up the embargo is a crime. He did a whole segment on Cuba and didn't bring up the embargo. Now, let's get to all of his points here. He says, first, oh, I want to trade the Americans who protest the flag for Cubans who don't. Think about what he's saying there. His point is, only Americans who agree with me, Ben Shapiro, count. So all this stuff that these guys like to say about intellectual diversity and tolerance of other ideas and open dialogue and free speech and free expression, it's all bullshit. He just told you, I would rather have ideological homogeneity than have ideological diversity. That's what he just said. The Americans who want to protest the flag, eh, I'd rather have them out of the country and Cubans who love the American flag in the country. So you want people who ideologically are more in aligned with you and the ones who don't agree with you to get out. And this is the other thing. You'll see this all the time with Ben. He strawmans his opponents, and he doesn't steelman them. So when somebody protests the U.S. flag, he just interprets that as, you hate America, and you're un-American, and that's disrespectful. That's a strawman of their position. Because if you talk to people who've protested the U.S. flag, talk to Colin Kaepernick, who he brings up derisively at the end, he'll tell you exactly why he's doing it, and none of the reasons are, America's really bad and I don't like it, it's terrible, I'm against America. Nobody says that when they protest the flag. Do you want to listen to people's actual concerns and then respond to it? Or would you rather just pretend anybody who's not on my political team hates America by definition and wants to actively make America worse? Usually when people are protesting the flag, they have a, a broader point and their whole point is, let's fix this issue to make America better. They're trying to improve America. But he doesn't even grant them that basic proposition. He just smears them and strawmans them, and they're all bad people, and they're all, they all just hate America. It's so lazy. And I don't know how anybody watches that and thinks he, he's nailing it. Then he goes on to say, this I love, because he pretends to be the facts over feelings guy. 
The American flag is the symbol of liberty. That's what he said. Then the American flag is the symbol of everything American. Everything America has done. That's what that flag represents. That's a fact. Your interpretation of it is an opinion. The American flag only represents liberty, or it represents liberty. Well, hold on now. If it represents everything America has done, it does represent the good things, but it also represents the bad things. So does it represent the Constitution and free speech and the New Deal? Absolutely. It absolutely represents those things. And helping to defeat the Nazis? Absolutely. It represents all those wonderful things. You know what else it represents? Slavery. Jim Crow. Native American genocide, Japanese internment, nuking Japanese civilians, the Iraq War, torture, Abu Ghraib, the list goes on and on. Now, you might not like that, Ben, but facts don't care about your feelings. I don't care if that triggers you. That's what the American flag is. It represents America. It represents the good and the bad. Again, I think that's obvious, but he wants to twist it in his conservative direction. Um, then he had the nerve to say, you know, people in this country, like Ilhan Omar, Colin Kaepernick, or people who protest the flag, uh, they have a distaste for our own freedom. Again, massive straw man. Uh, of course, they would concede that certain freedoms we have are wonderful. But, you know what's not wonderful? NSA spying, torture, the drug war, locking up nonviolent drug offenders, ruining lives over nonviolent drug offenses. That's not freedom. You get locked up in a cage because you sell a substance that slightly tweaks your consciousness? Nonsense. Or you've taken a substance that slightly tweaks your consciousness and you lose your life and your livelihood and you get locked up and it's all ruined? That's nonsense. Are we really free if we have millions of people who don't have health care? Are we really free if we have, you know, the minimum wage isn't even a living wage. Millions of people work full time and they don't make enough money to survive. In what meaningful sense are we free in that scenario? In what meaningful way are we free? These are all issues that need to be addressed. Now, I'm not saying I hate America. I'm saying let's improve it by addressing these things. And the attack on Colin Kaepernick was just the worst because stop and think about it, guys. The Cubans who are protesting, they said the reason why they're protesting, they need more food and they need more medical supplies. That's what they said. So the Cubans are protesting to improve Cuba. Kaepernick is protesting to improve America. He said it, hey, I want no more police killings and I want a fair justice system. Sure, he wants to end the drug war and free all the nonviolent drug offenders, disproportionately targeted people of color. So Cubans are protesting to try to improve Cuba. Colin Kaepernick is protesting to try to improve America because this is his country. And Ben looks at that and says, the Cubans are freedom fighters and liberty lovers and they're wonderful, but Colin Kaepernick is an ungrateful loser who doesn't appreciate America enough or whatever the fuck. It's just so childish. It's so partisan. It's so pathetic. And again, if Ben really wanted to be consistent, you know, he would talk about all the other countries that are our allies that have authoritarian repressive governments. And then there are people in the street protesting those governments, but he doesn't talk about those because if, if any protesters are nominally left-wing, their concerns are by definition, not legit. But if they're potentially right-wing, oh, now everything they're fighting for is legit, and they're freedom fighters, and they're great people, and we should uh, trade Americans who are on the left with people overseas who are on the right. Let's make the trade. 
Because I'm Ben Shapiro, and I love ideological diversity and freedom. I love freedom so much, I would ideally want to deport you if you don't agree with me about the American flag. I mean, the, loop, the loopholes in his logic are legendary, and yet he's considered, like, the intellectual of the right. Intellectual, my ass cheeks. Okay. Dave Rubin. Lord help me, I didn't want to have to talk about Dave Rubin again, but we're going to talk about Dave Rubin again because I couldn't, I couldn't believe this clip. So credit to uh, Dave Rubin clips that showed the world this on Twitter. This is really something else. Dave Rubin apparently thinks he debunked COVID with logic in this clip. None of it makes sense. Why is it that not one country somewhere perhaps in Africa that didn't have the technology or the wherewithal or the information to deal with this thing properly, why did not one country fail? Why didn't we find one city that was completely infected and everyone died. All of this stuff. Like, I'm just asking questions here, okay? I don't mean to be a crazy right-wing conspiracy theorist when I say all this. I'm just asking the questions. Ah, he's so dumb. He's so... It's astounding how dumb he is. Dave, 605,000 Americans died as of right now, as of the recording of this. And a little over 4 million people around the world died. Is that not pandemic enough for you? Does that not count unless an entire city in Africa dies? I'm not putting words in his mouth. You saw what he said. Go back and listen to it again if you don't believe it. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't begrudge you that because he, if you go back and listen, it's like you can't believe he says it, so you want to listen again. Oh, man. Yes, Dave, there are some diseases that are just incredibly dangerous and they have a mortality rate of 90 or 100 percent you know actually rabies is like that i believe there's a vaccine for it which is why you don't really see cases of it in the u.s much at all but big problem in india and other places is rabies uh rabies if you're if you don't get the vaccine or immediate treatment with antibody treatment when you get it you could die from it like 90 to 100 percent fatal Ebola virus, same thing. But you have to, in order to get Ebola, you have to come into contact with the bodily fluids of somebody who had it. So it does, it's not as infectious, but it's like, you know, depending on which variant or variation or, or strain of Ebola it is, it could be anywhere from 50% to 90% um, deadly. There's actually one version of it that apparently it, uh, you don't even get sick if you get it, which is interesting. But um, so there are some, some illnesses like that, some viruses, some diseases, but, but there's also diseases that have like a 1% to 5% death rate or like a 0.05% death rate or like a 0.01% death rate, but they're also massively contagious. And so they spread way easier. Some diseases are airborne. So it, like COVID, for example, is a lot, spreads a lot easier than even the flu. The flu spreads relatively easy, but COVID spreads even easier. And so you're going to infect 
colossal numbers of people, and if only 1% or 0.05% or 0.1% of the people die, you get giant numbers for death. So like I told you, over 600,000 Americans dead and over 4 million people around the world are dead from COVID. Are you, I guess what I would ask Dave is like, do you, in your mind, does something have to be like 50% mortality rate in order for you to care? Or higher, 80%? Does an entire city have to die in order for you to say, okay, yeah, this is a big problem? I'm genuinely curious because I, I, I'm floored at the fact that he asked that question the way he asked that question. What did you think? You got everybody in a logic chokehold about how COVID's actually not as bad as everybody's making it out to be? Tell that to the over 600,000, you know, Americans, family members who saw their loved ones die. Tell that to them. Or people who've had severe symptoms. Well, I'm not even counting the people who had severe symptoms and were hospitalized and barely survived. I have a neighbor a few doors down from me who barely survived. Tell it to them. The whole city in Africa didn't die, so checkmate, libtards. I'm a classical liberal. That's what I am. Looks to me like you're a classic moron. All right, next. So we have a deal that the Democrats made in committee on the reconciliation bill. Uh, Bernie originally wanted $6 trillion. Publicly, he was uh, sticking to that. Now, Bernie doing that was a negotiation tactic. He wanted to say publicly $6 trillion, $6 trillion, $6 trillion, and then act like I'm not going to budge from this. But then when he got behind closed doors in committee, he was like, okay, I'll agree to maybe 4 or 5 And then eventually he said, okay, to $3.5. Um, now, 3.5, if indeed they get it, is great. It's great to do $3.5 trillion in a reconciliation package. However, I hate to rain on everybody's parade. That's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because Manchin had said publicly before, maybe I'll do one or two at most, maybe 2.5, maybe three if, if we have a miracle and Biden can pull some massively convincing thing behind the scenes or whatever. But uh, so I don't think it's going to be 3.5, even though in committee they agreed to 3.5. Now it's going to get watered down even more. And this gets to the problem with the Democrats is like six trillion was Bernie's public position, but really only Bernie's public position, when in reality that the six trillion should have been what came out of the Democratic committee. And then when you negotiate with Manchin, you could get to like three point five trillion. But now it's three point five trillion coming out of committee, so it's gonna end up being like one or two trillion probably. And it's gonna omit a lot of things that we desperately need. So uh, now at least as of right now, it has in the expansion of Medicare to include vision, dental and uh, sight, right? No, vision is sight, never mind. Vision, dental, and hearing, yes. Vision, dental, and hearing stuff added to Medicare. It doesn't include expansion of 55 and up or 60 and up for Medicare, which is a shame. We don't know all the other details, at least as of not, not of right now as I'm talking about this, but soon the details should come out about what's in that reconciliation package. All we know now is what I just said. Um, but Manchin is already uh, drawing red lines. Look at this. So, according to The Hill, Senator Joe Manchin warned on Tuesday that he wants both a bipartisan infrastructure bill and separate Democratic-only bill to be fully paid for. I think everyone, everything should be paid for. I'll explain about all this in a second. We've put enough free money out, Manchin told reporters. Manchin's demand, if he sticks to it, could create real problems in Democratic negotiations. 
The party, in a matter of weeks, is seeking to exercise a complicated legislative goal of winning Senate approval of both a bipartisan infrastructure measure opposed by many progressives and a budget resolution that will tee up a larger Democratic bill filled with spending priorities. The latter bill will not win any GOP support and will need to pass with just Democratic votes, including mansions. Okay. Um, So here's why this matters. He's saying everything needs to be paid for or I'm not going to support it. Now, you might say, well, that's fine. I don't see the issue with that. But then he also is against raising corporate taxes to a number that would really help pay for it. He only wants to raise corporate taxes a tiny bit. He only wants to raise taxes on the wealthy, if at all, a tiny amount. So how the hell do you want to pay for it then? How do you want to pay for it? The way in which you would pay for a lot of these spending priorities is to raise taxes on corporations and raise taxes on the wealthy. If you're telling me you don't want to raise them to a sufficient number, well, then what you're saying is I'm really not in favor of the reconciliation bill or I'm really not in favor of even a half-decent reconciliation bill. And that is what he's saying. Oh, it all needs to be paid for. I mean, guys, the fucking 2017 Republican tax cut bill where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1% added trillions to the deficit. And they're just like, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead, go ahead. Go right ahead. Go through. It's fine. You guys pretend like you're deficit hawks. Not only are you not deficit hawks, you added to the deficit to give more money away to the wealthy and corporations. It was a giant tax cut for corporations and a giant tax cut for the wealthy. And they did it and didn't blink. Any of the wars we do, they just do it. It's not like, well, we must pay for it all, ASAP. They don't do that. It just adds to the deficit. But now when it comes to decent things for the American people, like elder care, paid time off, you know, uh, expanding Medicare, they're like, uh, we got to pay for every penny. And by the way, we're not going to pay for it the way which would be obvious, which is raising taxes on the wealthy and corporations. Corporations, I'm um, taking that off the table. Oh, for the love of God. So listen, to put this as simply as possible, if Joe Biden doesn't get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema's punk asses to fall in line, That's it. How many times have I told you his time in office as president is effectively over because he's not going to get anything else done? You've got to call him into your office. You've got to play the carrot and and stick approach game. You've got to say, I'll be your best friend or your worst enemy. Hey, if you cross me on this, guess what? We're going to primary you. We're going to fully fund your opponent. And I don't care. I don't care if if you beat the primary opponent then a, a Republican's going to beat you anyway because we're going to go vicious. We're going to go right for your jugular, and then the Republican will use the stuff that this person said against you. So I'm gonna, you're either your career is over and you're a pariah in Democratic circles forever, or you do the right thing, in which case I'll help you out. You want another military base in West Virginia? You want more money for some sort of infrastructure project there? You want a position in my administration? What do you want? But guys, what this tells me is, Joe's not doing any of that. He's not doing any of that. He's not working it behind the scenes trying to get everything in order. Because this guy is, you know, he ruins the whole thing casually, nonchalantly. Yeah, I got a red line. It's all got to be paid for. But I'm not going to raise corporate taxes to the proper number, and I'm not going to raise taxes on the wealthy to the proper number. So what you're saying is I will block everything. That's why everybody's saying it's President Manchin, because he's certainly acting like President Manchin. So, you know what, Joe? Show some balls, son. Have a spine. Step up. Do the right thing. Get him to fall in line or you're done.
So Nina Turner, uh, her election is soon in Ohio's 11th district. I think it's early in August. So it's coming up fast. And what you're seeing now is the establishment is desperate and they're trying so hard to take her down and they don't care about their tactics. They will do anything and everything to take her down. We've seen what they did to Bernie when Bernie was a clear front runner. Um, there's no low they won't go to. So this is disgusting. We already discussed uh, a smear ad in our last show, how they went after her. Um, they took everything she said out of context and made it seem like, you know, almost like she's a Republican, which is insane. Now look at this mailer that they're sending out. This is like a corporate pack trying to take her down. Nina Turner voted to divide us. Official ballot, 2020 Democratic National Convention. Uh, raise the minimum wage. They're trying to say Nina is against raising the minimum wage. They're trying to say she's against universal health care. They're trying to say she's against immigration reform. That is simply insane. Insane. So, yet again, let's correct the record. Nina Turner was in favor of Medicare for all. The Democratic platform said no to Medicare for all. So the Democratic platform was against universal health care. And that's why she was like, I'm not going to vote for this thing. So in other words, they get it exactly backwards. Anybody who supported the Democratic platform was saying, I'm against universal health care, or I'm signing up for an agenda that doesn't have universal health care. Nia was like, I'm not going to do it because I'm in favor of universal health care. We have a pandemic. People need health care, and you're not giving it to them. So I, I have to, I have a conscience, and I have to stand up and be on the record as against these cretins who are working for the health insurance companies. So they just lie. They just flat out lie. They flip the truth right on its head. Other things that weren't in the Democratic platform that Nina Turner would have wanted in the platform. They said no on legalizing weed. She wants to legalize weed. They said no on conditioning aid to Israel. Hey, you need to, you know, follow international law and give Palestinians their human rights. Uh, and if you don't do that, we're going to condition aid. The, the platform said, no, we have unconditional support of Israel. So Nina was like, that's bullshit. I'm against that. I'm against that. We need to condition the aid. So she's standing up for Palestinians, and she gets smeared because of it. They had no uh, Green New Deal, for example. There was nothing on the Green New Deal in the Democratic platform. She says, this doesn't go far enough. So that's why she was against it. By the way, I think it was in 2016, she's the one who brought the amendment on the $15 minimum wage to um, the platform, or it may have been was it 2020? It was either 2020 or 2016. She was the one at the convention who was like, yeah, $15 minimum wage, we're putting it in there, and I'm so excited for this. And they're trying to say she's against raising the minimum wage. This is flat-out lies, and they know it's lies. It's a corporate pack. They're lying to try to take her down. Uh, Chantel, her opponent, has been out there lying relentlessly. Hillary Clinton endorsed the opponent. The Congressional Black Caucus endorsed Nina's opponent. This is, they're trying everything. They're throwing everything they got at her. And guess what? Some of it is working. So she had a giant lead. Now, to be fair, this was Nina's internal poll numbers, but she had a colossal lead. In Chantel's numbers, internal numbers, uh, Nina's still up by seven. So that's a good sign because probably Nina's up like 10 or 15, but being up 10 or 15 is not nearly as much as like the 30 or 40, whatever she was up before. So some of this stuff is working because it's easy to mislead people and it's easy to trick them using, uh, you know, partisan tribal loyalties and affiliations.
And so they're trying to, she's not a team player. She's not a real Democrat. If anything, she's helping Republicans. She's not even for universal health care and uh, living wage. She would be the strongest fighter on both of those policies, and she's on the record a thousand times over supporting those policies. This is just, a, it's flat out lies. It's lies, it's lies, it's lies. Everybody needs to go out there and correct the record for Nina Turner. Everybody needs to crusade on her behalf. This is what they do when they think somebody will actually bring change and will actually fight for the people. The corporations and the wealthy and all the, the terrible centrist Democrats, they, they turn to tactics like this. I'm going to lie about you. I'm going to smear you. I'm going to use nothing but dishonest tactics because I feel like that's the only way we can win. We cannot let that happen. Don't let that happen. That would be unacceptable. We've got to fight back. We've got to stand up for Nina. And I hope that this massively increases her, her fundraising. And I hope that you know, she has a good team around her that knows how to deal with all this stuff because it's not easy. You expect at least a modicum of truth in the arguments they make, but it's not there. Literally, their point is, since she didn't support the platform, now she's against uh, raising the minimum wage and universal health care. When her whole reason for opposing the platform was it didn't include, it did not include universal health care. And it didn't include a Green New Deal, didn't include supporting Palestinians, um, didn't include legalizing marijuana. So again, they flip the truth on its head. It's disgusting. It's unacceptable. I hope everybody covers this. I hope this gets out there. We got to defend Nina because... Uh, it's got to feel horrendous to know that if they end up beating her and if they end up winning, it's because they lied and they smeared and they're dishonest and they threw so much money into Chantel's campaign at the last minute to try to buy a seat to prevent somebody who's actually trying to help people and fix the system. It's not okay. Final story of the day, y'all. So this clip... This clip, this clip, this clip. This is really something else. The end of it is the most insane part because you have to really focus on what Jesse Waters ends up saying. But you're going to have Greg Gutfeld here whine and bitch and moan about the culture war. But it's kind of hilarious the argument he makes because Fox News is most guilty of what he's accusing others of being guilty of. But then the interjection at the end from Jesse Waters is like, I can't believe this is supposed to be a news channel. Watch this. Cuba. You were just had an assassination in Haiti. Mm -hmm. You got China making aggressive moves in, in, you know, all over the place. You got Russia in ransomware, which is basically cyber warfare. And now we have this Cuba stuff. But our press is doing all their trench reporting in, in the culture war. We are now so obsessed about our past and litigating our past that we're not looking around and we're not looking at our future and what could happen next. These are the battles that are currently being fought, but we believe that the battle is over non-binary toilets, right, and pronouns. And I tell you, I'm kidding, but we are spending an inordinate amount of inordinate, inordinate, this is important. Inordinate. Thank you, important. Uh, um, a matter of time, um, reckoning with our past as opposed to understanding what, the, I mean, imagine, if, you know, if, if think about pre-World War II, if we were obsessing over the things we were obsessing in America, what would have happened? You know, would we have ever uh, would have engaged the, the, the Germans or the Japanese or anything? It would have, 
We would have been, you know what, we're not able to do that right now because, you know, Billy doesn't feel right. Well, we never would have dropped the A-bomb on the Japanese, and that probably would have cost millions more American lives. What? <laughs> what? So understand what they're arguing there. Greg Gutfeld's like, we're so obsessed with the culture war, we can't even focus on serious issues. That's the point he's trying to make. And then Gutfeld is like, yeah, if we did that pre-World War II, we wouldn't have even nuked civilians in Japan. Well, then I wish we were talking about those issues back then, because I don't want to nuke civilians in Japan. Listen, guys, it's, you know, we're not going to get into all of it here, but just understand the idea that if we didn't nuke Japan, that millions more Americans would have died. What do you talk? First of all, a million Americans didn't die in World War II. It was a lot. It was a terrible number. It was like 400,000. But millions didn't die. And he's like, millions more Americans would have died. No, the war was already over. The Japanese were trying to surrender. The nuking of civilians in Japan was a show of force to tell the rest of the world, to tell the Soviet Union, just so you understand, we're we're the craziest people here, we're the biggest, baddest dudes on the block. That's why they nuked Japan. Now, you don't have to take my word for it, but do yourself a favor and go read at all the, the situation surrounding the nuking of Japan. Go, go read about it, because you're going to be astonished about it. You are. And by the way, the Soviet Union had more deaths of their soldiers in World War II when they were fighting the Nazis. The U.S. had 400,000. There were at least double, more than double, actually, of Soviet soldiers who died. So, you know, to just give us credit for ending the war or act like millions more Americans would have died, that wasn't going to happen. We nuked civilians, and the reality is we absolutely didn't have to do it. We didn't have to do it. Killing civilians is wrong. I don't care who does it. Killing civilians for political reason, that's terrorism. That's the definition of terrorism. We did the worst terrorist attack of all time was the nuking of innocent civilians in Japan. And this idiot is like, if we were as silly back then as we were today, we wouldn't have even nuked civilians. Well, then, for the love of God, I wish we were as silly back then as we are today. It's so amazing. The guy is so brainwashed and so dumb. He's never met, like, a, heard a pro-America argument or piece of history that he didn't instantly believe. God, Jesse Waters is such a clown. And, okay, so now let's get to um, what's-his-face's argument, Greg Gutfeld. Um, so he says, we got all these serious things going on, Haiti, stuff going on in China, Cuba, Russia with their cyber warfare. By the way, the cyber warfare stuff is from, like, gangs. It's not from the government of Russia. It's from gangs trying to, like, you know, get money. That's what it is. He, but he makes it like a government issue. But anyway, so he taught all these serious issues. Now, notice, he brings up these serious issues. He didn't say anything about health care, didn't say anything about wages or unions or NSA spying or endless war that we should stop or corruption or climate change. Didn't say anything about any of that. Nothing about any of that. He was all the serious issues are Haiti, China, Russia, Cuba. And he's like, why aren't we talking about these serious things? And then he says, because we're all we're lost in the culture war. And all we do is talk about the culture war. And that's the problem. You know what? He's actually right. We are lost in the culture war. And all we do is talk about the culture war. But Fox News is the worst offender. You guys are the worst offender. On the same week that we had $1,400 stimulus checks going out the door to the American people who desperately needed them, Fox News was changing the conversation by talking about Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head. 
you guys are the worst offenders. And you know what? You do it on purpose. You do it because you know you can't actually win in the realm of policy, so you want to change the conversation to some goofy social issue shit so you could look like we're the serious people and the lefties are insane. So the thing he's accusing others of being guilty of, you guys are the biggest culprits. You do it all the time. And by the way, yes, it's not the issues he cites as like the real serious issues. No, the real serious issues that we need to address ASAP are health care and wages and unions and NSA spying and endless war and corruption and climate change. That's the stuff that should be on the forefront of everybody's mind that we need to fix right now. But instead, he thinks what? What do you want to do? You want to invade Haiti and invade Cuba? You want to do more endless war, more invasions? You want to do something? You want to fight China or fight Russia or, or sanction them more or get into a standoff and continue the Cold War? That's serious to you? No, I'd rather you guys actually talk about the culture war and be wrong on the culture war than get us involved in other countries in a, in a nefarious and terrible way that would only exacerbate bad things more. So it's, it's the twilight zone over there, man. This is a news network. It's a news network. Deeply unserious people making deeply unserious points insufferable. All right, guys. We are done with the show, y'all. I love you very much. On uh, Crystal Kyle and Friends this week, we have Brianna Joy Gray coming on. Really looking forward to that. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a good one. Peace.